welcome to this bonus episode of Planet B, Everything Must Change. I'm Harpreet Kaur-Paul. This episode features an extended edition of our interview with Lale Kalini, Professor of International Politics at Queen Mary University of London and author, amongst many titles, of the book Sinew of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. You may have already heard clips of this interview in our Planet B episode on water and the global Green New Deal. If you haven't, make sure you check that out on the Navarra Media podcast feed. My name is Lale Khalili, and I'm a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London, and I'm speaking to you from Hackney in London. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you begin by telling us about your book, Sinews of War and Trade, and about the research you did for it? What is the book about, and what spurred you to write it? So, Sinews of War and Trade is um, about uh, the development of... uh, maritime transport infrastructures in the Arabian Peninsula over the course of the long 20th century. Um, and, and actually, prime, the primary focus really falls on uh, the period after the Second World War, but it does cover a little bit of the prehistory of the emergence of these ports there. And part of the reason that I was particularly interested in um, writing this book was because um, I was very curious about the fact that one of the largest ports and container ports in the world um, is located in Dubai. Now, Dubai is a um, city-state that is, um, you know, it, it's got a few million people, but it doesn't have a very large hinterland. And in fact, the entirety of the population that lives on the Arabian Peninsula um, is no more than a few dozen millions. And yet here is one of the ports that's one of the largest ports in the world after some of the um, bigger and more more recognizable names like Singapore or Shanghai or Hong Kong. And so I was curious about why it was that um, this port Jabal Ali in Dubai had become so big. Um, And I also was very curious about the the way that um, uh, the, the Arabian Peninsula Peninsula connects eastward and westward. Um, it's longer history being situated in sort of the roots of trade uh, between Europe and Asia. And I was particularly also interested because, um, because of course, the uh, significance of both British and American interests there, both during co- colonial periods and obviously even in the period of um, decolonization and after. And so all of these things came together and I ended up doing a bunch of research um, in archives, interviews, visits to ports, but also uh, some of the ports that I wasn't able to visit or countries that I wasn't able to get a visa to, to visit, you know, by flying there, I ended up going to and visiting um, by traveling on container ships a couple of times. Uh, and so arriving by sea, um, although not being able to sort of disembark and leave the port space, but being able to visit in that way. That's incredible. It, it's also incredible to know that 90% of global trade still happens through maritime shipping, but we don't really seem to hear about it. And it and, and it's analogous, I guess, also with the fact that maritime shipping is excluded from a lot of climate regimes as well. We do hear a lot of conversations about how tech companies are trying to leverage um, systems to be able to promote just-in-time delivery but less about how supply chains behind 
these um, 24-hour delivery promises are invisibilized to obscure the reality of the work that underpins our modern economy. Can you tell us a little bit more about how we can visibilize these invisible supply chains so I think that um, that's, a, that's a fantastically interesting comment that you're, you're making about how these spaces are invisibilized. I mean, there's a whole set of processes that have emerged that have pushed maritime transport um, beyond sort of the uh, vision and consciousness of, of ordinary publics. Um, one is that as um, these ships become larger and larger and larger, um, they end up being, um, the ports that serve them end up being pushed further and further and further outside of city centers. It used to be that many of the ports, the actual harbors, were often very closely tied to the urban life of the cities in which they existed. But most ports now are actually sometimes between 50 to 60 kilometers outside of the large city after which they're named. So um, it's very rare to have the port be very intimately still tied to the city itself. Even in places like, um, I would say, for example, Singapore, where the port is close to the rest of the city, you're also seeing that um, ships are being, uh, sorry, the harbor are being pushed further and further through land reclamation. So part of this is actually um, the very basic geographic spatial uh, placement of ports. Another is the securitization of ports. Um, most of the ports that um, I actually um, tried to visit or did visit um, have incredibly complex processes where you have to get permission to go onto the grounds of the port. They're often um, barbed wire fences that separate them. Often, actually, the design of um, the roads that lead to these ports makes it very difficult for anybody who, who's not driving a truck to these ports, for example, um, to to be able to access them. There's like moats of roads all around these ports, which makes, for example, pedestrian access impossible. So that's also part of the process, this both securitization and the sort of urban design that um, isolates these spaces. And then, of course, it's invisibilized because um, the ships themselves are at sea for a great majority of the time. And of course, we don't see the people that are working on those ships and we don't see the trade that they're engaged in. And it's only when things break down that we become aware of it. I mean, I think people probably learned more about international shipping when um, ever given grounded in in um, the Suez Canal, and I would say anything else could have actually. It was a, it was a very educational moment. It, it was a it was a moment in which everybody was learning a little bit about how this stuff works. And 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 in fact, what you mentioned also about the just in time process, part of it, um, it, it that in fact even became clear to people because I think the ship Ever Given had. Um, auto parts that were supposed to be going to auto manufacturing, um, car manufacturing um, plants in Germany. Um, And those auto parts were arriving from East Asia. And I think that this actually um, heavily impacted um, the the, the, uh, process of manufacturing in that sort of a supposedly frictionless way. Um, So this moment of friction, of course, made that clear. I think there's also another moment in which this kind of um, invisibilized space becomes clear. And that is when people actually organize not just around sort of economic bread and butter issues, but around the political issues tied to these bread and butter issues. So the convergence between the political and economic in moments like, for example, the uh, stop the boat, um, 
and banned about protests in California where uh, political activists, uh, uh, pro-Palestinian political activists, were trying to get um, Zim ships, uh, Zim is an Israeli shipping company, um, uh, to stop Zim ships from unloading uh, armament, actually, um, in uh, in California because um, they had figured out, the activists had figured out that the armament was arriving for the police there. And this was in the wake of... This was just um, very quick, uh, very short, shortly after the protests in Ferguson. So, so the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests, and so the, the activists actually connected these these transnational uh, forms of coercive trade to one another. So, uh, an Israeli ship bringing uh, guns for. U.S. police. And so they actually then uh, organized um, uh, protests, but also uh, organized with the Longshoremen's Union, um, with, with the Dockers Union in uh, California to, to sort of stop them. Also, they also boycotted unloading the ships. And these ships, this has happened now s- several times in, um, in several different years where this kind of st- work stoppage actually sheds a light on, as you say, the invisible protests processes of trade and maritime transportation. That's an incredible example to highlight the ways in which the ocean is traversed to kind of connect these seemingly interdependent struggles for racial justice and against apartheid in occupied Palestine together in ways. And I I want to come back to that towards the end of this interview. But first, what (laughs) happened in the Suez Canal and what did it show us about the modern system of global trade when the Ever Given ship um, blocked the canal? I think it's really interesting that Ever Given's uh, blockage of the canal and grounding in the canal has become such a sort of a significant moment because I was just recently, uh, just yesterday actually, I was in the British Library and doing a bit of research on something else I'm writing. And I was was reading about all of these different tankers that used to get grounded in the Suez Canal all the time. And there was concerns about them because they carried oil. There was concern about them blowing up and, for example, destroying the canal. So what happened this, uh, and we don't hear about all of those. And in part, I think this is partially because of the way that Ever Given was memefied. And it, so it became a kind of a, um, it was, it, it kind of became a social media um, uh moment, a, a social media viral instance of memification, which made it such a sort of a significant uh, thing and, and and people were became aware of it. So what had happened there was that as the ship was coming into the canal, uh, there was a sandstorm blowing across the canal and the winds that blow across the canal are transversal. So it, they essentially cross the canal at, an ang- at, at a, usually a straight angle. And so that, of course, means that the ships are being pushed towards the side of the canal and they have to make some adjustments to the way that they steer in order not to do so. I think in this instance, they were given advice by the Suez Canal pilots. Um, you know, but when you enter the canal, um, two pilots uh, or, or guides from the Suez Canal company board the ship in order to guide them through the various stages of crossing the canal because they know the canal really well. And in this instance, those pilots gave advice to the captain, which wasn't 
apparently a very good advice given given the sort of the strength of the wind that was blowing. And so the ship overcorrected and through overcorrecting lodged its prow into the um, side of the canal. And so the problem was that um, they could have tried to push the back of the boat, the, the, the um, uh, sort of the portion that was still in the middle of the canal. They could have tried to push it the other way in order to force the ship to come out of the side of the canal. But there was also some concern because the ship was so laden. There was some concern that if they, uh, very powerful sort of tugboats tried to do that, that it might actually cause ten, uh, uh, you know, cause strains in the actual hull of the ship and break the ship down, which would be pretty terrifying. So uh, it, would, it would be devastating um, if something like that happened. And so I think what happened then was the effort to actually dig out the, the the bow of the ship out of the side of the canal and and in so doing give it a little bit more room to maneuver out of there and that's where you know that little image of the um, tiny little bulldozer that could you know trying to sort of dig out the brow uh, emerges now what had also of course this happened um, over the course of the six or so days that the ship was um, stuck in the canal was that of course there was a huge huge backlog of ships that were waiting in the Gulf of Suez, but also at the head of the um, canal in the Mediterranean, trying to cross through the canal. And actually, after the second or third day, a number of the shipping companies started routing their ships because they weren't sure how long it was going to take for the ship to be unloaded, uh, for the ship to be freed. Um, So a bunch of shipping companies started routing their ships around the Cape of Good Hope. Um, in any case, so the, the ship was finally freed after about um, six weeks because a bunch of different sort of companies that knew how to dig up ships and do this kind of salvage arrived. And there, there was some, uh, the conditions improved in terms of weather and wind. And there were tugboats and other specialist equipment. And finally, the ship was freed. And um, it, was, uh, it was freed from the side of the canal, but then it was arrested, essentially detained in the Great Bitter Lake, um, which is in the middle of the Suez Canal is sort of halfway in the Suez Canal. Um, it was detained by the by the Egyptian authorities until um, they, they could extract some money from the insurers for the shipping company. Um, and and of course, what you know through that whole process, what everybody um, didn't really think about were the thirty or so um, Indian seafarers that were stuck on the ship um, and and who were you know obviously scrutinized quite strongly by um, the Egyptian government and who. Uh, weren't sure how long they were going to be detained. Finally, the shipping company paid some hundreds of millions, um, and, and the shipping company's insurers paid some hundreds of millions to the Egyptians, and the ship was released. In that process, of course, not only the contents of Ever Given were delayed from arrival in Rotterdam, which I believe was its final destination, but also all of the other ships that were behind uh, Ever Given, um, and of course, all of the other ships going in the other direction. So this resulted, um, from what I understand, uh, as you probably know, India is a major manufacturing center, for example, for vaccines. And so there was some concern that some of those ships might be carrying vaccines to Europe. Um, uh, and of course, there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, not only uh, just-in-time manufacturing kind of parts, uh, supply chains, uh, sort of elements in the middle, but also uh, apparently IKEA um 
you know, uh, furniture, um, apparently tires, apparently all sorts of other things that are manufactured in East Asia and which are sent to Europe uh, were stuck on Ever Given and the ships behind them. And of course, oil tankers as well, because Suez Canal is one of the biggest um, uh, areas for oil tankers to travel, uh, oil and uh, natural gas tankers to traverse. And so there was a delay also in, in the arrival of all of those goods. That story reveals so much. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into um, seafaring workers and and you referred to um, how the Indian workers on board the ship were detained and and the conditions and and the uh, interrogation, I suppose, that they, they may have been subjected to. What could you tell us more broadly about seafaring workers on global shipping trade routes and how they've been affected during the pandemic? I think that that's one of the most devastating, one of the sectors that has been most devastated by the pandemic. We, of course, know that a lot of the frontline workers, logistics workers on land have also been massively affected because we've seen statistics arriving, for example, during uh, COVID times from all around the world where the people that were um, the category of workers uh, that that were most affected by the pandemic that um, in terms of actually getting COVID and and being hospitalized or uh, or dying from it, uh, in in addition to healthcare workers, were actually delivery drivers and, and, and others, in part because they never stopped moving from space to, to space and they never stopped being exposed, you know, door to door going. I mean, they, they were probably the people that could not isolate in the and the like healthcare workers um uh, like a lot of other people in other jobs could do. And so delivery drivers of various sorts, um not only the people who, for example, deliver food to your um, door, but also, um, uh, for example, Amazon drivers or other kinds of delivery services um, were quite affected by this. The other category of workers that were massively affected were, of course, seafarers. So seafaring has uh, essentially become, has always been, I mean, there's a, there's a, a vast body of actually literary works written about the conditions of seafaring, everything from Melville's famous uh, books about shipping to Joseph Conrad's, but also huge numbers of other wonderful books written in more recent times. Among them, uh, B. Traven's Death Ship, uh, which is about sort of uh, uh, terrible conditions of work aboard ships. Um, And Claude McKay's stuff uh, about the the, the major Jamaican writer, Um, his writings, for example, about uh, the seafarers in his famous Marseille novels. And in all of those, what becomes clear is that historically seafaring has been an incredibly um, difficult uh, job anyway, because people are torn from their families. They they go on ships in conditions that often are quite exploitative. Uh, The work of Marcus Redeker, historical work of Marcus Redeker shows, for example, that a lot of the seafarers were often pressed into service um, uh, in in ways that they didn't have very many rights. In the 20th century, the struggles over rights that seafarers unions have engaged in, has has, uh, it's been a lot of push and pulls and a lot of the gains that have been gained often are eroded through various various kinds of processes, uh, among them, for example, flags of convenience, which is the registration of a ship in places where uh, the labor laws are not as strict as, for example, European countries would be. And so because of these processes, work aboard ships um, 
is very variable. So if your ship is registered to a, it flies a flag or is registered to a country where there is some modicum of uh, labor regulation or environmental regulation, then your working conditions are generally a little bit better than it would be, uh, or I should say actually significantly better than it would be if your ship is flagged to a place where these labor laws don't matter. What that translates to in real terms is that Europe. For example, uh, people that are working on uh, ships flagged to Europeans, and if they're European themselves, um, often can get shorter contracts, i.e. they spend less time at sea, um, and they have, uh, you know, the, the sort of the wages are a little bit better. But even on ships that are flagged to European countries, there a kind of a dual wage regime obtains, where you have the officers often being from European countries and having these better contracts, and then you have the crew members um, being from the countries of the global south, um, often quite racialized. There's quite a lot written about how they're sometimes abused aboard ships in conditions that actually remind one of like the writings of Redeker or B. Traven or, um, uh, or indeed Melville. And, uh, and, and so you, you, you end up getting this very div- clear division between people from the global north working on these ships and people from the global south and the working conditions on the same ship, even on a ship that has, you know, that is flagged to a European country are not you know, they, they end up being very distinct kinds of working conditions. COVID, of course, intensifies this. So when, when the pandemic hit, as you remember, a lot of ports and airports shut down. Essentially, transportation in a lot of different places came to a halt. And while there was a need for cargo to still travel, and cargo did, in fact, travel quite a bit, with exception of some brief period where China's ports were shut down, um, the seafarers could not get off the ships. They couldn't get off the ship because of sort of the ban on movement or sort of processes of quarantine and because the airports were shut. Um, seafarers who had come to the ends of their contracts simply could not disembark. And so you had people that, you know, uh, that by regulation, you're not really supposed to be uh, aboard a ship for more than nine months um, at a time. Uh, but people who were, so, you know, who had been, who had served their nine months out, um, ended up not being able to leave the ship. And so they were they were going around the world. And in some instances, people that had been on board a ship for two years had not seen their families for two years. Um, and of course, in many instances also, uh, particularly um, in the earlier parts of the pandemic, many of the seafarers who worked in, for example, not, not in cargo ships, but on cruise ships, would catch the illness from sort of the travelers from from the passengers and uh and then they would be because of course they live in such cramped quarters um the, you know, covid would just spread like wildfire through through the crew members of these um of these uh cruise ships on cargo ships you also had instances of uh crew members catching um covid when they arrived into port and in some cases um they when they would go out to sea, they they did not have access to healthcare. There's no there are no medics ever on board these ships, and so you did also have instances of seafarers who passed away and whose bodies actually were put in the fridge in in the ship as it went around and until finally arriving to a port which would take um, the bodies of the seafarers who had passed away, or in instances of you know. So, so it's, it it has been an incredibly difficult set of circumstances for for seafarers during the pandemic and even now whenever there is uh so so when the delta variant emerged a lot of uh different ports actually stopped 
taking on Indian seafarers. And so a form of quite openly racialized, xenophobic form of uh, boycott, essentially, um, ended up being implemented under the guise of uh, public health provisions. And so even today, those, I mean, even at this moment, even as, for example, a lot of the lockdowns have been lockdown provisions and border control provisions around COVID have been removed, even now, those, um, there, there are a lot of seafarers that are still um, dealing with sort of the aftermath and after echoes of those laws and uh, border provisions and quarantine provisions, etc. I wanted to ask you more broadly about the relationship between racialized capitalism and water and oceans, which this podcast that we're doing this interview for focuses on. We're thinking about how we need to reimagine that relationship in the future, both of escalating climate breakdowns, but also as an opportunity to move away from the world as we currently know it and, and, and rebuild a new one. So in that context, can you tell us anything else that you think it's interesting to note about this relationship of both the oceans as a site of resource extraction, but I guess more pertinently for your work as a vehicle for commodity trading and profit and what we can understand about that and what we might need to reimagine um, for a more just and fair and resilient future? I think the, the 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 ocean, in fact, has been in a significant space for the forging and maintenance of racial capitalism. Because if we think about the ocean as as and, and maritime transportation uh, being the vehicle of uh, imperial expansion, colonial expansion, in um, from the. 15th century onwards. Um, and if we think about the way that so many of the different sort of conceptual apparatuses that shape our capitalist modernity emerged through these maritime sets of relations, um, I, I think it becomes clear that we do have a lot to reimagine. So let me begin by, for example, um, giving some sense of what it is that I'm talking about. The idea, for example, of sovereignty or, or of an absence of sovereignty over the sea um, often hides the fact that the he who has, and I'm using that pronoun uh, <laughs> considerably, um, he who has the guns will be the sovereign, even on a space like the sea, which is supposed to be um, unowned um, uh, and, and which is not supposed to be uh, under the sort of, uh, you know, the world's oceans are supposed to be a global commons. And of course, they're not. He who has the resources to be able to extract from the ocean um, and, and to, you, through the force of the gun, actually uh, project their power over the oceans is going to be able to also dictate what counts as free trade, dictates what counts as, uh, you know, resources and who gets to have those resources. And that's everything from uh, subsea mining to the exploitation of, for example, the fisheries and other kinds of uh, um, products that we extract out of the sea, but also to the way that the sea itself um, Especially at the in its where it meets the shore, where where it meets land uh, on the shores, um, is uh, subjected to uh, the depredations of capital through land reclamation, through dredging, through um, uh, sort of the dumping of uh, uh, 
pollutants from the ships. Um, and so, in a sense, the waters of the sea, uh, precisely because there's an alibi of them not having a kind of a sovereign over them, also become the space where they are exploited ruthlessly by those who have the power to exploit them. So the fact that it's, for example, uh, difficult to call the sea the property or the territory of a particular location, that there are contestations over what what counts as, for example, the zone uh, for uh, economic zone or sovereign zone or territorial waters or um, sort of the legal categories that define which bit of the sea is owned by whom. These are completely and constantly and even today massively contested. And so that also means that on the one hand, uh, power decides who gets to exploit them, but it also means that there are questions of accountability around, for example, climate change or around uh, sort of devastation, ecological or environmental devastation becomes very difficult to navigate. So I think that that's one of the things that, to me, the, 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 the questions of environmental devastation uh, are inseparable from the way that um, capitalist modernity and law have intertwined in particular ways to enforce exploitation at the expense of those who would be able to use the sea in sustainable ways at the expense of the people who live by the sea at the expense of those of us who um, may not necessarily live by the sea by the, and I mean that in both ways, near the sea, but also uh, using the sea as, as a way to sort of sustain ourselves. But even for us, the sea matters. And so in some senses, I think when one looks at the maritime transport infrastructures, particularly um, at ports, it becomes clear that uh, so much of the ways in which uh, ca capitalist relations are resulting in uh the, the, the destruction of our uh, lived environments, including the oceanic environments, it is, going back to the very first question you asked, is invisibilized. It becomes difficult to track. It becomes difficult to uh, challenge. And it becomes, um, and, and it, it is, for that reason, incredibly urgent um, to, to deal with in some ways. Thinking about this, you know, I'm really thinking that the, the nations that colonized peoples and places that resulted in the accumulation of wealth that enables them to have the power to and enter parts of the oceans that should be held in common and yet are um, leveraged by powerful corporations and, and countries is this long history that, as you set out, starts over 500 years ago as the ocean was traversed to places to, to, to kind of name, segment, um, extract from and exploit peoples and places. So that's a really powerful articulation of it. But also I'm thinking about the ways in which protesters fighting against apartheid in, in Israel came together in California with uh, organizers for racial justice in the US and also how the ocean links people <laughs> in struggles yes. um, to bring 
concretely the the um, items that are perpetuating harm in various distinct places together in in a struggle of of global resistance as well. So I just wanted to kind of end on thanking you for kind of highlighting <laughs> both the adversity and the solidarity that came through in, in that example earlier. Um, and just ask if there's anything else that, that you wanted to add before we close this interview and just thank you so much. I think I'll just add, uh, if I can, that um, I, I think that you, the, the idea of ocean as connecting different struggles is enormously important. And there is a very long history of that. Um, again, I'll go back to Marcus Redeker and Peter Leinbaugh's book, The Many-Headed Hydra, which is precisely about those communities of resistance that emerge around the Atlantic Ocean. And, uh, and I think that it is... Uh, it's important to recognize that the space of exploitation is indeed the space of movement and connection. It's a space of sort of aspiring towards freedom as well. And then I think that that's what makes um, the sea such a sort of a fascinating object of study um, and, and, and struggle. And the kind of expansiveness in, of the sea is, is a powerful imaginary. It kind of defies that segmentation that um, states and, and corporations have tried to bestow on it. One hopes, yes. One hopes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Planet B. Everything must change. This series was produced by Freddie Stewart and made possible by the generosity of the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. The music and sound was produced by Ben Heidemann and the podcast artwork was designed by Tamika George and Pietro Garone.